is Resurrection Sunday. I'm not a giant fan of the word Easter, but I suppose if Yeshua can answer to Jesus, then we can call this holiday Easter, even though uh, it seems to have some pretty darn pagan roots. We are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. It is the fourth month, twelfth day, 2009 years since we celebrate His entrance into the world. Testifying every time we give that date to the fact that the man walked upon the earth and it has never been the same since. What an awesome thing. I want to talk to you this morning about God's right hand. So our message this morning will be called The Right Hand. When I began thinking about a resurrection service, when I began thinking about all that has been accomplished in the heavenlies, all that has been done in our lives, it is inescapable to me that this is in its heart an underdog story. When you think of underdogs, some of you guys that have been around a little while might remember a western, Shane. You remember the little boy crying out, Shane, Shane? Some of you that maybe are a little younger than that and don't remember the black and white westerns can certainly identify with a movie, Rocky, about a little guy who beats up great big guys, right? Well, in all of those stories, there's some common themes. Somebody comes from behind. Somebody comes from an impossible situation and wins. The gospel is not an adaptation of those stories. All of those stories with an underdog hero theme are an adaptation of the gospel story. The reason that it resonates in us, the reason that something about you goes, yeah, when the guy was knocked down but gets back up, is God put it in our very heart to want to see that, to yearn for it. Ecclesiastes says He put eternity in our hearts. As I began thinking about the underdog stories, my mind drifted. The great heavyweight champions of the world have all had some things in common. I was looking into Rocky Marciano this morning. That's the story from which Rocky was taken. And Rocky Marciano was born September 1st, 1923. He is the son of two Italian immigrants. He's raised in Massachusetts. Early in life, he almost died of pneumonia. He was sickly, not a great athlete. And when he reached puberty and started to bloom as an athlete, he got kicked off of his school team because he wanted to participate on the church league team. And you couldn't do both at the same time. So he walked away from school in the 10th grade. High school dropout, son of immigrants, sickly in his youth. But in 1952, after having been a shoemaker, a ditch digger, and the chute operator on coal trucks, he became the heavyweight champion of the world. He was loved by a lot of people. In fact, old men will fight with you about whether Rocky Marciano was better than Cassius Clay because he's the only heavyweight champion that never at any time suffered a loss. 49-0, 43 of them by knockout, he had a devastating right hand. And as many heavyweight champions as you can look into, whether it's Cassius Clay, Joe Frazier, Jack Dempsey, Big George, or Joe Lewis, all of them had the power to have a game-changing, devastating punch. You could be on the ropes, losing for round after round, and one massive shot could drop your opponent. And this is what makes it fun to watch those guys. 
two fat guys leaning on each other in a ring wouldn't be fun <coughs> if one didn't have the ability to completely change the entire scenario. You know, Joe Lewis, when you think about him, is responsible for a couple amazing quotes. You ever heard, he can run, but he can't hide? Mm -hmm. Joe Lewis said that about one of his opponents first time. He's the originator of the quote. But my all-time favorite comes from him. It's been adapted by others. It says, everybody has a game plan until you punch them in the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> All people love the idea of somebody coming from behind to win. What happens is that when somebody possesses the power to turn a scenario on a dime, we're drawn to it. We're drawn to anything that provides us hope in a dark hour that something can change. These guys all had the ability to change the entire fight with one punch, and our God is no different. Turn with me to Exodus 15. Now, I realized while I was speaking with one of our young men in the church yesterday, some of you have come in recently, some of you have been here a long time, that's just how a church is, a healthy church has people that are moving in, people that are moving out, going on to do whatever God's called us to do, equipped, prepared, and sent out. And because of that, some of you don't know what is behind the their tradition in our church. In other words, when I say turn to Exodus 15, what do you say? There. there. And what does that mean? Does it just mean that you're in Exodus 15? This comes from the idea that stability, that strength, that the anointing all flow from being where God told you to be when He said to be there. The message was called, A Place Called There, and it came from God sending Elijah to a brook to be fed by ravens. Something that looked entirely unstable. And yet if it's where God said to be, that's where you would find your provision. So when I call out a scripture and you get there, say, there. there. Talk to me on Sunday mornings. <laughs> Alright? I'm just asking for a little feedback. This is not sage on a stage. There are no movie cameras in here. And I am not a demagogue or a movie star pastor. I am a brother whose role in the kingdom happens to be helping to provide instruction and guidance to you. So don't be scared to speak to me. It hurts my feelings when you don't. Alright? We are praying for more of our Hispanic, more of our Asian, and more of our African American brothers who are not scared to speak in church like all you whiteys. That's okay? right. Help. Thank you, Matthew. Alright, Exodus 15. Y'all ready for the third verse? We had a Caucasian invasion in the beginning of our church and we were working to swing the balance. The Lord is a warrior. Next time somebody tells you, God is love, that's true. You know what else God is? A warrior. a warrior. The Lord is a warrior. Yahweh is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and His army He has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. My mother has a good forehand in tennis, but I don't know if it rises to the level of majestic in power. My pop's got an excellent short game on a golf course, but I don't know about majestic in power. This is one of those adjectives 
that really has got to be used only exclusively for a very select group of things. Of all the things that you could say about God, this is a very Hebrew way to say, He has an amazing right hand. Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. Now, do you have to stretch too far to put this into another arena? Could you see this description being given of two men squared off in a boxing ring and one unleashed a majestic right hand, unleashed burning fury, and his opponent was cast to the ground? The reason that the Gospel sets these kind of scenarios in this scene is because inside of us, it is supposed to cause a hero to want to rise. It is supposed to cause in you the attitude that says, I have been rescued from the dominion of darkness. This is completely and teetotally juxtaposed to the idea that I simply believe on Jesus or I have accepted this doctrine or I'm a member of that church. No, we are a part of a victorious God that has delivered a death-crushing blow with His right hand. We're not a part of a bless me group that just wants to get rich. We are not just meeting in a sanctuary, a place you keep birds. We are members of the living church of God that delivers a crushing blow to the enemy. This is how God is described throughout the Hebrew Tanakh, throughout the Old Testament. Turn with me to Psalm 20. The Hebrews knew that God had a devastating right hand and they learned to trust in it. Tell me when you're in Psalm 20. One of you is there. There we go. Ain't that better? You're not going to make me encourage you to do that every time, are you? No. Thank you. (laughs) In Psalm 20, because the Hebrews knew they had experienced their very nation, get this, was birthed through the Red Sea as God delivered a knockout blow to their tangible enemy. The king of the entire world with one thrust from God's right hand was down for the count. All of his nobles, all of his tanks, his chariots, everything. And they learned to trust in this because they had no armies. They had no tanks. They had no head to their nation. They simply had their God and His devastating right hand. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May He remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May He give you the desires of your heart and make all your plans succeed. We will shout for joy when you are victorious. And we will lift up banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He answers Him from His holy heaven with the saving power of His right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The name is His function, His authority, His reputation, His body of work. 
They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. The Hebrew people got used to God coming through with a strong right hand to save them. They sang songs just like we do. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And yet, that was not the end of the story. They didn't just learn to trust in it. They eventually learned that all victories came through it. Turn with me to Psalm 44. That would be to the right in your Bibles. They got to the place where God had come through enough. There, 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 there. That they said in Psalm 44, verse 1, We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us what You did in their days, in days long ago. With Your hand You drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples, that's the Gentile nations, and made our fathers flourish. It was not with their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was Your right hand your arm, and the light of your face, for you loved them. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Israel began to sing songs about the Lord's right hand. They began to acknowledge that there never has been a victory that did not come through God's devastating right cross. Turn with me to Psalm 17. Don't you get tired and don't turn. Good job, Jeremy. Jeremy's beating y'all. That's because Mandy's not in the room today. In Psalm 17, they began to pray for something. In Psalm 17, starting in verse 6, I call on you, O God, for you will answer me. Give ear to me and hear my prayer. Show the wonder of your great love. You who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in you from their foe. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Another way to say that is keep me in the very center of your sight. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from wicked men who assail me from my mortal enemies who surround me. Israel saw themselves as a people group surrounded by ferocious wolves. And they began to call out and pray to God. Say, save me by your devastating right hand. There's a major problem with all of those things, though. Have you ever been in trouble and cried for help and it didn't come? Anybody in here ever suffered loss of any kind? Are you unique in all of human history and that every day of your life has been a complete victorious battle? Are you unique? Anybody in here experience loss? Yes. yes. See, even the white people can be taught. Good job, man. Good job. Turn with me to Psalm 74. Israel was no different. What happens when you know that God has unlimited knockout power? What happens when you've learned to trust in it and you're praying for it and you're asking for it? And you're made to endure loss. Psalm 74, starting in verse 1. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the people you purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwelt. Turn your steps toward these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary, 
your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up the standards as signs. They behaved like men wielding axes to cut through a thicket of trees. They smashed all the carved paneling with their axes and their hatchets. Anybody know what we're talking about here? We're talking about the sanctuaries of God being overrun by enemies. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshipped in the land. We are given no miraculous signs. No prophets are left. And none of us knows how long this will be. Friends, there's a time period in Israel's history that is no different than we think of the distance between the cross and the resurrection. Everything that we see is lost all around us. God has unlimited, devastating, knockout power. And yet we're overrun. Have you never been in that position? Have you never been in a place where you felt like the oppression was so great that you couldn't stand? If you never got there, then you never really got saved, to be honest with you. If you thought that you just saw the Lord and said, you know, it'd be a good idea to serve Him, then you weren't really saved. You may have intellectually ascended to the truth of the Gospel. But what is it that you were saved from if you were not overwhelmed with torrents of destruction? See, a great, a great oppression needs a very great Savior. The further the enemy is ahead, the greater is the comeback. The further you have been knocked down, the more glorious the resurrection. Or another way to say it is, where there is no suffering, there can be no glory. This is how the apostles learned to rejoice in persecutions and fill up in their bodies what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ because they understood something from Israel's history. Is this the end of Israel's history? Sanctuaries overrun. How about Psalm 80? Israel's prayer is much like our prayer. Before the cross, some things were unclear that are now clear. You're benefited by that. You're benefited by the writings of these holy men, by the lives of these holy men. But you must for a moment roll back in time when you didn't have a cracker-white, blue-eyed, blonde-haired painting of Jesus as Jeffrey Hunter. And you didn't know in what shape God's hand would look. And you were just praying that somehow or another it would show up. Maybe you could see yourself saying these words. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim and shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, awaken your might! Come save us. You know how to say the word come save us in Hebrew? Hosanna. Hosanna. We sing it all of the time. What were they asking for when they saw Jesus? Come save us. Restore us. That is, save us. O God, make Your face shine upon us that we may be saved. O Lord God Almighty, how long will Your anger smolder against the prayers of Your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears. You have made them drink tears by the bowlful. You have made us a source of contention to our neighbors. And our enemies mock us. I don't want to hear from educated Christians anymore that God will not allow you to suffer. 
is dealing with his nation over a period that stretches from 1600 BC to the present shows just the opposite. But in the end, where there has been great suffering, there will be great glory. Where there has been great oppression, there will be great deliverance. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Who did God bring out of Egypt? Israel. But He calls them a vine. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and took root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its bows to the sea. It shoots as far as the river. Have you been blessed by the nation of Israel that spread out over the earth? You hold the book in your hand that is Israel's gift to you. God used them to bring that book to you. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and all the creatures of the field feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. Listen to this. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. The Son of Man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. The cry of Israel in their oppression was, God... Send us your right hand, man. Send us your right hand, man. As they began to think about, to sing about, to pray about God's right hand, man. The one who would yield God's devastating knockout power in His very being, some ideas began to accumulate. Turn to Psalm 109. Just a few pages to the right. I know you have it memorized, but it makes me feel better when you read with me. There, there. Psalm 109, start in verse 30. With my mouth I will greatly extol the Lord. In the great throng I will praise Him, for He stands at the right hand of the needy one to save His life from those who condemn Him. First and foremost about God's right-hand man. They're hoping, they're praying, they're believing that He will be somebody who stands by those who were otherwise condemned. Can you say amen to that, saints? Amen. The Lord said to my Lord... How does one Lord say to another Lord? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. God, the Lord, said to somebody who would be Lord over all of Israel, a king of kings, you will be my right hand. You will be my devastating power. And I will make all enemies a footstool for your feet. That's something to hope in. That's something to pray for. This is why the nation of Israel met Jesus with cries of, Son of David, Hosanna, save us. There was a great oppression and there was a need for a great deliverer. Our God 
had a bit of a plot twist. Well, turn with me to Psalm 16. Same two people are speaking, God and David. Amen. You guys are getting good at that. Start in verse 7. I will praise Yahweh who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I have set Yahweh always before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the grave. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with your eternal pleasures at your right hand. Speaking of God's right hand man, this son of David, he would not be abandoned to the grave. Well, what is our champion doing in a grave? If he's coming to free us, He's coming to shatter the jaw of the enemy the same way you did, mighty God, when you delivered us from evil. Why is he even there? The first problem that ever entered mankind was not the lust of the eye, as people teach. first problem that ever entered mankind was none of those classic theological things. It's so much more simple than that. Death entered mankind. A creature that was meant to dwell and live with God forever certainly or suddenly had a finite number of days. And when those days ended, there would be a judgment. And when our days ended with a judgment, we had no means of writing what had been wrong. So a right-hand man had to be sent from God. Somebody who had God's devastating power, who could alleviate the original problem that had come upon mankind. The battle plan is almost perfectly laid out in a song that David sang. It shows up in the book of Samuel as it's happening to David, but it got put into Israel's hymn book, the book of Psalms. And it happens to be immediately to the right of where you just read. Read with me in Psalm 18. Let's read about the battle plan a thousand years before it occurs. This verse 4. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. When you hear the, the cords of the grave coiled around him, does that bring to mind any animal? Something that coils around you? It's hard not to think of a serpent, isn't it? The Hebrews were always rich with their imagery. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. From His temple, He heard my voice. My cry came into His ears. The right-hand man of God would be completely wrapped up in death. But his cries would be heard for a nation who felt like their cries were not being heard. When you think about your salvation experience, was there ever a time in which you felt like you cried out to God and He didn't hear? But one day, one day suddenly something was different. 
there was power where there had been no power before. Where there had only been the cries of your heart that went out, suddenly there was an answer from heaven. Did it alleviate all of your problems immediately? Did you suddenly ascend into the heavens and become a naked baby with cherub-like wings? Did you and the preacher with the last name Money suddenly just get rich and drive the drug dealer's vehicles all around? Death entered mankind in a single day and it ravaged it for thousands of years. In a single day, victory has been earned, but it takes thousands of years to drive it all the way out. The earth trembled and quaked. This is when his cry goes up. And the foundations of the mountain shook. They trembled because he was angry. Who was angry? God Almighty is angry when his right-hand man is attacked by the cords of death. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Now I know that seems like the writers took some creative liberty, right? Because God doesn't even have nostrils. The Father cannot be seen. The Bible makes that very, very clear. He's spirit and cannot be seen. But to a Hebrew, to flare your nostrils means you're angry enough that we're fixing to fight. You understand? You ever been standing in a lunch line with somebody? Michelle? <laughs> and you knew when their hands clenched, it was about to get on? This is a Hebrew way of saying God was angry enough that he was about to fight. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of eagle. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. From the third hour, from 3 o'clock, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, it got dark on the cross. Before an invasion, you like to have some ground cover. When you're going to attack, you try not to do it in bright daylight. And we just happen to serve a God who can command the sun to not give forth its light so that He can enter upon the scene. Out of the brightness of His presence, clouds advanced. With hailstones and bolts of lightning, the Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot His arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning and routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed and the foundations of the earth lay bare at Your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from Your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but Yahweh was my support. He brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because He delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, He has rewarded me. If you ever thought that David was simply speaking about himself, how on earth could he make a statement like that? How about Adam? Could Adam say that the Lord had dealt with him according to his righteousness, the cleanness 
of his hands? No, Adam sinned and fell. How about Cain? Could Cain say it? No, Cain had sinned and fallen. What human being could say that? For I have kept the ways of Yahweh. I have not done evil by turning from my God. All of His laws are before me. I have not turned away from His decrees. I have been blameless before Him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in His sight. When they sang this song, surely they sat and thought, but who could that possibly be? There's never been such a man. There's never been anyone that could make that claim. To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the crooked you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. You never find that out if you're never in darkness. With your help I can advance against the troop. My, with my God I can scale a wall. As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. For who is God besides Yahweh? And who is the rock? It's not Rocky Marciano. Except our God. It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. Have you never read the verse in Hebrews that said once declared perfect, He became a source of righteousness for all who would believe in Him? He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You give me your shield of victory and your right hand sustains me. There was only one human being that could ever say that God's devastating power dwelt in him without hindrance. So he goes on to say, You broadened the path beneath my feet so that my ankles do not turn. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You made my adversaries bow at my feet. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but He did not answer. I beat them as fine as the dust born on the wind. I poured them out like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of my people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did not know are subject to me. What an amazing, amazing thing. If this was a human being, made in God's image. It lacked something. And what happened is this thing was placed in a garden and it looked an awful lot like God's right hand. It looked like something with devastating power. It was even made in that image. But when pushed on, it bent over 
every time. So Adam is standing there and he looks like God. He looks like he has a devastating right hand. And he's told, subdue the earth. Subject the earth to God's righteousness. But at the suggestion of a serpent, he and his wife bent the knee. And they bowed over. So there must have been hope in the next generation when they named their children after they had been told from the woman is going to come one who will crush the head of the enemy. Adam got so excited he named his wife Eve. He said, you baby, you are going to be the mother of the living one. What do you think she hoped for when she saw Cain and Abel? She hoped for somebody that not only looked like God, but had his strength to deliver a blow to the enemy. But the enemy was wise. He began to whisper into one's ear that the other thought he was better. There was sin there, but no power to master it. Then we move to a time period where there is such wickedness upon the earth. There is such violence upon the earth that it seems as if all mankind has been pushed over by the power of the enemy. But there was a righteous family. Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth. We'll start again with them. Uh Uh-oh. Noah gets drunk and naked. That's pretty drunk. I don't know how to make the gloves naked. Drunk and naked. His son shows disrespect for him. It seems that every generation is flawed. Well, how about the King David that wrote these things down? At times he seemed to have the strength of God in him. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy the armies of the living God? He knew that there was something available to him that was not him. He didn't say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine to defy me? He knew he was weak and would fall to any enemy. And yet, he knew that God had the power to work through him. And he considered an attack on him an attack on God. See, the battle plan was laid out so that a son of David, somebody who more perfectly yielded to the power of God, could come on the scene. Let's go to John. That would be a good place to go. How much time goes by? There's a timeline on the wall. From Adam until the book of John. 4,000 years plus. That's a long time of mankind bowing. If every time you ever saw a glove like this, in the slightest breeze, it bent over, what would you expect every glove you ever saw to do? I don't know about you, but I had a bad experience one time with a black dog. And every time I walked down the street where there was a black dog, I learned to have the same kind of reaction. Having had one bad experience with it, it made me think, if I'm on that street and I see a black dog again, I'm going to put a foot to it because I don't want to get bitten. If every time you ever ran into this glove, all you had to do was blow on it and its strength was shown to fail, what would you expect to see the next time a glove showed up? Something full of steel? 
something immovable, something with devastating power in it, or would you expect it to fall like every other instance before it? See, the Word says in, in John, the first chapter and 14th verse, the Word became flesh. and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning Him. He cries out saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me has surpassed Me because He was before Me. From the fullness of His grace we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, and as good as that was, grace and truth came through Christ Jesus. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. Psalm 80 cried out for God's right-hand man. Psalm 80 cried out for somebody who was God's devastating knockout power to show up. And now He's here. But the problem is, He looks like any regular old glove. We've been trained by the cross to view Jesus a certain way. We know the end of the story, so when we read about Jesus, it's hard for us to see Him as anything other than divine. But if you walked with Him, if you ate with Him, if you were there, when you both had to do something as common to humanity as visit a latrine, it would be hard to see him as anything other than glove. Do you understand what I mean? Turn with me to Matthew 4. You ever watch two heavyweights fight? Do they run out and throw the haymaker immediately? Do they walk around with the right hand just flailing the entire time and never throw a punch? What do you do? What is the left hand for? It's a jab. This is a way to probe your enemy. It's a way to find his range, to find his distance, to figure out his rhythm, to find out what kind of power he really has. Whose idea is this in Matthew 4? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Does that strike anybody in here as oddly as it strikes me? How about lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? How about God cannot be tempted, nor does He tempt anyone? How about all of those Scriptures? And yet this one says... Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted. Does that not strike anybody as odd? It was God's idea to move His right-hand man into the ring. And now the jabs begin. Now the probing, the testing begins. Satan steps into the ring and he looks and he goes, I've seen these guys before. I will find your weakness. 
I accuse people like you day and night before the Father. Mm. And all of you are guilty on some point. You give me some time. The Father knew that this would be an interesting event. So he deprived Jesus of food for 40 days. Can you imagine a heavyweight trying to make weight by depriving himself of food for 40 days? To drop down to the weight that would make this heavyweight contest even a contest. Jesus had to step out of the heavenlies. Take on the form of a man. And that wasn't low enough. He then had to take that man out into a desert. Not to train. Not to get stronger. Not to learn to depend on horses or chariots to be deprived of everything that was physical and put in the most vulnerable place possible. Because the greater the trouble, the greater the deliverance. The greater the suffering, the greater the glory. Listen to how this sparring session starts. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Friends, that might be the understatement of all time. I have difficulty going four hours without food. Sometimes I have difficulty going 40 minutes without food. This kind of hunger, apparently, the Greek seems to accentuate. It's not simply the thought of food. It's not that just desire to eat. It's that desire because your life is going to ebb away. It's that desire that comes from even your organs trying to sustain life. Mm. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Do you notice something? He doesn't say he's not the Son of God. And he doesn't say that he is. This is like a jab. Are you? Let's find out. He's measuring him. He's measuring distance. He's trying to equip himself with the right pace and speed. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This must have been staggering to the prince of this world. Because normally when a man's life was on the line, normally when a man's life was ebbing away, he would do whatever it took to save it. I've watched in my own family Men who said they were not scared to die spend their last dime to stay alive. Most of the time, if a man's life is on the line, all he cares about is saving it. But this one only cared about the Word of God. So here comes the next jab. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written... Now he's going to use the Word of God against the Son of God. He will command His angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil said, Oh, you know, Scripture. His next jab comes. He uses Scripture. Did God really say you recognize the same jabbing pattern? It was first directed at a woman in a garden. But this human being 
knew how to put God's word in its context so that he couldn't be manipulated into doing something that wasn't God's will. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. If you can't get a man to save his life and you can't get him to show out a little bit, brag a little bit, surely you can get him to assume great quantities of power. Because we all know if you get it, you'll do something good with it, right? How many carnal testimonies have you heard from carnal athletes that tell you that Jesus made them a great superstar because of all they could do with it? Really? Then why did He choose to make His Son a nobody? Yes. If you're an athlete who's accomplished great things, I'm very proud of you. That's not what makes a man great. What makes a man great is his level of submission to Yahweh God. And I don't care if you can run a football I could care less if you can hit a golf ball. But to be able to stand in the ring with the prince of this world and do what your father says, that's remarkable. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came to attend him. Why did angels come to attend him? Because he was in a human body and it was now pretty worn out. Even the Son of God did not minister in his own strength. Turn with me to John 14. Jesus makes a remarkable statement. Anybody know what meeny meeny tuckle parsons means? Comes from the book of Daniel. You've been weighed, measured, and you are found wanted. Wouldn't that be a horrible thing to be in the ring with somebody? And they jab with you for a while. They punch with you for a while. They take a shot that is all you have to deliver and they smile and say, you've been weighed. You've been measured. And you've been found wanting. That would make you wish that the 15 round fight was only one round. Because they had all that you had to deliver and it was not enough. Are you in John 14? Yes. Because Jesus makes such a statement. Look at the 29th verse. Oh, goodness. Why don't we just back up to the 23rd verse? If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. Where is that in our doctrine? My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Give you devastating knockout power. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Y'all go ahead and take out a black highlighter to that verse because I know it's unpopular. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. That is quite an interesting thing to say right before the darkest hour in human history. Jesus is going to the cross. How can you say, do not let your hearts be troubled? You heard me say that I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. You want 
to find the beginning of devastating knockout power in your life? The beginning of all wisdom comes with the acknowledgement that there is a God, you're not Him. But I want to turn that around for you for a minute. You make yourself an absolute idiot when you know what God tells you to do and you act as if you're God and not Him and do what you want to do. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. How could Jesus say that? He had weighed the prince of this world. He had measured him. And he knew where his weakness was. The devil had thrown his very best jabs to no effect so that Jesus could say this, but the world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded. Exactly what my Father has commanded. Turn with me to the book of Corinthians. Could Adam say, I do exactly what my Father commands? Could Cain say it? Could Ham say it? Could David say it? Could Solomon say it? Can you name me any king of Israel or any prophet of Israel that could say it? Every time a human being had been in a sparring match with the enemy, we were the ones weighed and found wanting. We were the ones that didn't measure up. In fact, put us in a garden-like setting where there is paradise and we have only one rule to follow. And we still didn't have what it takes. But God had a right-hand man who looked just like a weak, regular human being. And he knew he could lure the devil into a fight with this guy. Because the devil had beat everybody that had ever had this height, weight, reach, and appearance before. If you were Lennox Lewis, and you were 6'5 and 240 pounds, and you'd been throwing punches for a living all of your life, would you be all of that worried about fist fighting with Judah? What if you had had 40 years of experience of knocking Judah out? How threatened, how concerned would you be if Judah showed up on your door and stepped into a sparring match? In the book of Corinthians, in the second chapter, there's a very curious verse. Starting in verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the tour, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Part of God's battle plan has included something that the rulers of this age didn't understand from the beginning. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You remember that Cassius Clay was one time in a fight and everybody was very concerned that he laid on the ropes for round after round 
after round. And as his opponent became tired, he got off of the ropes, and you guessed it, he knocked him out with a right hand. Our God boosted the devil's confidence for thousands and thousands of years by allowing him to spar with us with very little interference from him. To the point where human beings felt oppressed and began to cry out, how long will you withhold your right hand? And then he slipped his right hand into a human being that the devil would not be scared to fight with and beckoned him into the ring. And if the devil had understood what was awaiting him, he never would have entered the ring. Turn with me to Corinthians 15. Now I remember that a particular heavyweight that had a giant mouth but could back it up said that he floated like a butterfly and stung like a bee. He's not the originator of that idea. Start with me in verse 45. So it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first but the natural and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. All of us know what it is to be weak, to be pushed on into yield. All of us know what it is to have no strength in us to fight the enemy. But the Bible says that Jesus the Christ has been raised to the right hand of God. And in Acts 2, 32-33, He said He is pouring out His Holy Spirit on all of those who believe. So that just as you bore the weakness of Adam... You can bear the strength of the Christ. In Acts, the fifth chapter, Peter and John stand before the religious establishment and they say, You judge for yourself whether it is right that we should obey you rather than God, for we have received the Holy Spirit who is given to all of those who obey. Ordinary, humble men that were weak were being filled with the devastating knockout power of God. So that where we would have been tempted to take bread, we want the Word. So where we would have been tempted to seek glory, we are willing to endure suffering. Where we were tempted to seize power for ourselves, we're content to sit at the foot of the table and just see what happens. Because the prince of this world has been weighed. He has been measured. And he has been found wanting. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. You can tell me that you are a diesel mechanic. But if I have never seen you with a wrench in your hand, I may not believe you. You can tell me that you are a Christian. But if I have never seen Christ in you, I may not believe you. But if you tell me that you have power over death and you can raise the dead and I have seen you lay down your life and pick it up, why would I not believe you? We are fond of telling our children, do what I say and not what I do. Our God has done just the opposite. He says, do not believe me unless you see me do what my Father does. In the Son of God, we see devastating knockout power. So when He turns and says, I've already defeated the enemy. All you have to do is trust in My power. Why would you not believe Him? For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. You have to put on His devastating knockout power. And the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has clothed with the imperishable. And the mortal with immortality. Then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Yes. He can say, He floats like a butterfly and stings like a bee. But my king has stood in the ring with him and has promised me there is no more sting in it. He's been weighed. He's been measured. And he's been found to have fallen short of the glory of God. And now it chaps his heart. He's angry. He's cast down. His time is short. Yes. And he has nothing to do but try to convince you that this is not available for you. He says, God can do it. Jesus can do it. Fred might be able to do it. Darren might be able to do it. But Casey, you can't do it. And he says things like, I saw you the other day. I know what you were thinking. I heard what you said to your wife. You need to remember something. If he's whispering in your ear, it's because he no longer has an ear in heaven to whisper into. He has been cast down. The opponent of mankind has tasted devastating knockout power. And that power is available for you if you believe. Turn with me to Romans 8. I have two more scriptures for you. And then we'll go experience gluttony. Two of you were there. there. Good, because I'm going to wait until you're all there. In Romans 8, let's start in 28. 
We serve a God who will let his whole nation get burned, his temples ransacked. We serve a God who will let his son be beaten to the point where there is no more flesh on his back to give, no more beard to pull out. We serve a God who will let the underdog story go to the nth degree. Because the greater the oppression and persecution, the greater the glory, and our God loves glory. He's the author of it. I don't care how far down, how far out, how far gone you think you are or someone you know is. The word that was true for a nation that was not even a nation for almost 2,000 years but is today is true for the peoples of the world as well. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those that love Him. Really? He can work in my divorce? Yes. Really? He can work in the death of my loved one? Yes. Really? He can work in me losing a job? Yes. Although those were hypothetical examples in my life, but the truth is one of the things that He worked the most in in my life was an absolute absolute devastating beating that I got in front of all of my peers and it is one of the most singular events that drove me towards Jesus I began to find out there was a God and I was not him and it was the beginning of wisdom I found out that my arm was limited and his was unlimited in all things, God works. Now watch this. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. He wants to take you from the dust of the earth to the substance of the divine. That He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. Those He called, He also justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also along with Him graciously give us all things? Who will bring charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. It is He that condemns. Christ Jesus who died more than that who was raised to life. The cross is wonderful. It is the greatest sacrifice the world has ever known. But he would have been another criminal that died on the cross if he did not raise. So yes, the cross, but more than that, that he was raised to life. It proved he was who he said he was. Is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all of these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Church, this Resurrection Sunday, I want to remind you that you were not called to great riches. You were not called to great glories. You were not called to great provision. You were called to a great contest 
between a prince that has been cast down and a God who fills ordinary gloves called human beings with extraordinary power. And He is teaching the universe a lesson through people just like us. You were called to adversity that you might overcome it. You were called to situations that required a conqueror. You were called to situations that required a warrior. A warrior who would love the unlovable. That would stand by the condemned. That would hold out light even when surrounded by darkness. That empty tomb means so many things. But above everything else, it means there is devastating knockout power for those who believe. My last scripture is Paul's prayer for you. He first wrote it to the Ephesians, but I'm pretty fully persuaded he meant to cease it to you. It'd be in Ephesians, the first chapter. Even my mama went on that one. And she never listens to what I tell her to do. She's my mama. You don't have to. But I brought her mama today. <laughs> so she's being good in church. <laughs> Ephesians 1, I want to start with you in the 17th verse. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus, see the Lord said to my Lord, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for Jesus. That's not what it says, is it? His incomparably great power for us who believe. Incomparably great power. So what temptation has seized you that you cannot get away? What situation has forced depression upon you that you cannot overcome? What situation has overcome you? No, in all of these things you are more than a conqueror because incomparable knockout power is available for those who believe. That power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given. Not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. I want you to read the sixth verse of the next chapter. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show, doesn't matter what He shows, the point is 
God has a right-hand man. He has devastating power that will not yield to the enemy. He has fulfilled man's original calling. Yes. Subdue the earth and everything in it. Now you are in that man. You are seated with Him in the heavenly realms. You are seated at God's devastatingly powerful knockout right-hand power. And it is available. It's all the power in the universe. It's just used at God's discretion to return to the garden. You do what He says when He says to do it. And nothing is impossible. You can even tell a mountain to get itself into the sea. And it will obey you. Saints, what do we lack? Not a thing. The tomb does not contain a thing in it because the enemy had no hold on him. And you lack no good thing because he has no hold on you. Stand to your feet. It's a non-traditional Easter message from a non-traditional church and an extremely unorthodox pastor. But I want to tell you the truth. In 1993, I tasted his incomparably great power because for the first time, I really believed. And I have become somewhat addicted to it. I need it every day, every hour. I need it like a drug addict needs heroin. Don't you be content to sit back and live an ordinary life yeah. as an ordinary human being that bends and bows to the prince of the power of the air. You get filled with his devastating knockout power and be what he's called you to be. That would make this Easter something worth celebrating. Amen. Join hands, Amen. let's pray. Mighty God, Lord, we thank You. We thank You for the empty tomb. Yes. Mighty God, we thank You that the message was announced by angels and men. That it was attested to by holy prophets, apostles, and ordinary people. We thank You, Mighty God, that we have it on reliable testimony that it is true. We thank You even more so that we've experienced it ourselves. Because we're not at the mercy of people who merely want to argue about it. I know what your power is. And I pray that it would work to great effect in each of these men and women. That it would work in me. And that the world would be changed through it. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright saints, happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day.